Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 9th, 2018, and my guest is author Ryan Holiday. Ryan's first appearance on Econ Talk was July of 2016 to discuss his book, The Ego is the Enemy. His latest book is Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue, which is our topic for today. Ryan, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me again. Before we begin, I want to let parents who listen to Econ Talk with their children know that today's conversation is likely to involve adult themes that may not be appropriate for children of particular ages. You may want to screen this one on your own first. And I also want to say that I did not expect to like this book. It's not the kind of book I usually read, but I'm a fan of Brian Holiday. And I, once I picked it up, I literally struggled to put it down. I read it in less than a day. Uh, it's a gripping, incredibly uh, entertaining read. Partly because of the twists and turns of the events that it chronicles, which are crazy. Partly because of the portrayal of the main characters, which are really extraordinary. But it's more than that, which is why I invite Ryan to talk about it today. It's an extended meditation on power, strategy, patience, revenge, conspiracy. So let's get to it. Ryan, the story begins in 2007 with a seemingly casual blog post in an online publication of Gawker. Talk about what the Gawker Empire Network was at the time, uh, a little bit about what it came to be and what that 2007 post uh, was about and how it involved Peter Thiel and some of those consequences. Gawker Media was sort of a rebel independent media empire. They had a number of sites uh, that covered New York City gossip, they covered Silicon Valley gossip, they covered sports gossip. Um, and they sort of they sort of relished uh, their reputation as the outlet that would publish things that other publications wouldn't touch. So Gawker famously would uh, pay for sources. Uh, they would uh, you know publish in some cases stolen uh, information, or they would um, they would post rumors uh, that in fact Gawker's slogan uh, for many years was uh, "Today's gossip is tomorrow's news." And sort of informally, the, I think the attitude was rumors are a way to get to the truth. So they sort of saw themselves as the, the place that would publish the things that other people wouldn't publish. And then by doing so, create sort of larger conversations that the rest of the media would then pick up. And so in 2007, at the prompting of the site's uh, founder, Nick Denton, uh, Valleywag, which was Gawker's Silicon Valley arm, posts the article, uh, Peter Thiel is totally gay, people. It's an unsourced article, uh, or at least no attributed sources, uh, and and it basically sort of pokes fun at and explores the uh, sexual orientation of of Peter Thiel, who in 2007 was sort of best known simply as the founder of PayPal, and then uh, you know the, this early investor in Facebook. The magnitude of that bet hadn't fully been made clear yet, obviously. And, and then at the bottom of the article, and I think this is what Teal reacts to the most, Denton would post a series of comments sort of speculating as 
to why Teal was so secretive about his sexuality. And, and, and so, as you said, it was, it was not just that Peter Teal was gay, which is a fact, although a, a not particularly well-known fact, it's that Peter Teal was gay and not willing to talk to people about it. And so Teal was not happy about this. Um, and at some point, maybe right away, thought about a whole set of things, including that he was angry. Uh, yes. <laughs> that this maybe was good or bad. I'm sure he started thinking about whether this was good or bad for the world, that this kind of thing would, would become well-known, something that a person wanted to keep private. Uh, and there's a dinner in uh, – what year is that dinner in Berlin? 2011. So four years go by, and, and Peter Till, what happens in those four years, and then what, what happens at that dinner? Yeah, it's actually interesting. In Denton's comments, he even alludes to at that time that Teal may have been threatening or that there may be uh, some sort of reprisal for Gawker uh, running this article, that, that Teal was very upset. And, and yet nothing really happens for the next four years. Um, Teal does hire an attorney uh, in New York City named Eddie Hayes, who's a character in uh, in uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. He's sort of a famous mob attorney and worked for a, a number of other outlets. And uh, uh, and Teal hires him just to sort of explore what his options are. Not not necessarily legally. Like Teal uh, ends up meeting with a few Gawker writers. Uh, just to sort of see what it, it's 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 as if he's just sort of exploring. He's sort of rudely introduced to this media outlet that that would out him, and and is also sort of finds out that look, this isn't technically illegal, um, uh, and, and it it might not be something that that is particularly smiled upon in the media industry, but it's how Gawker works. And so Teal sort of dances around this. He looks at. Can I talk to them about this? Can I see why this is happening? Can I come to understand this? And sort of quickly finds out that that's not the case, but but pretty much despairs for the next several years of really any any recourse. You know, he, he famously says in an interview around uh, 2009 that he believes sort of Gawker is the silicon or sorry, is the is the Al Qaeda of the Silicon Valley, if that gives you a sense of, you know, sort of how strong his reaction was, but really didn't believe he could do anything and didn't do anything about it this entire time. And so I, I believe there was both sort of an outrage and a despair and this sort of, these sort of twin emotions that are defining where Teal is for this this sort of extended period. And before you talk about the, the dinner in 2011 that sets uh – the events of the book in motion, uh, without going into any much lurid detail, uh, Peter Till's not the only person who's struggling with Gawker's revelations. They're publishing not just rumors about people's, say, sexual activity, but videos online of people's sexual activity, uh, humiliating things. Uh, and they seem, at least from your book, to revel in it, and their staff is motivated and incentivized to um, – to smash celebrities, to to humiliate people—that's the way it comes across. I don't know whether that's a fair yeah. portrait of their uh, of their uh, ethos. Well, I, I I do think it's a fair portrait, and I, I tried to sort of explain where they were coming from. It's like sort of Gawker is this sort of disaffected generation of writers, sort of show up in New York City 
and realize that that all the glamour is gone, that there's just hypocrisy and and awfulness. And they they sort of see their job as as the truth tellers that say the things that other people won't sell. And the way that this the company is set up is writers are paid uh, first with how many posts they do. And then second, uh, when that system is is less than effective, they're paid partially based on how much traffic those posts do. So they have a real incentive to go after these kind of salacious things. And, and how, and how that, is Dick Denton, the founder, how is he doing financially from this experience? I mean, Gawker explodes in, in popularity. Uh, you know, it does it by 2007. It, it's doing, uh, you know, tens of millions of of page views per month. Uh, by 2011, 2012, we're probably in the, the billion categories, certainly, certainly annually. So on the one hand, there's that, there's that force, like the realizing that if you pay people by the page, you, you unlock a very powerful mechanism. But then I think the other element that Denton had figured out, and this is, I think, key to his success, is that outlets were previously far too conservative. So the legal departments would say, oh, don't publish this. You might get sued. Uh, you know, uh, we got to be careful. We got to make sure our, our, our T's are crossed and our I's are dotted. Denton realized that although people would often threaten to sue you, they they very rarely actually would. There was a, in 2005, for instance, Gawker runs a sex tape of a musician and the the out the 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 musician sues them for 80 million dollars. And then when Gawker sort of writes out, like, look, you don't want to do this. Let us explain to you why you don't want to do this. Not only does uh, the musician drop the lawsuit, but he sends flowers to Nick Denton by way of apology. And so Gawker is is both extremely powerful in terms of their actual reach. But they're also powerful because they sort of called the bluff. Powerful people like to threaten to sue media outlets. But if you're ashamed of something or you have a secret – the last thing you're going to do is file a lawsuit, which then, uh, you know, puts this in front of the public eye and opens you up to, you know, discovery in a lawsuit. And the other piece that's going to be important is that one of their um, defenses, Gawker's defenses, is the First Amendment. Yes, yes. They believe that sort of provided that that something was true uh, – it was 100% covered by the First Amendment, which is not a, necessarily an inaccurate interpretation. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the, the standard for uh, for libel and, and defamation in this country is extremely high. You have to show sort of actual malice. And so I think Gawker realized, like, look, if, if there is in a halfway decent journalistic explanation for this, we're probably covered by the First Amendment. And if we're not, we're probably covered by the 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 reluctance of the other side to actually force this issue. So what happens in Berlin in uh, 2011? Thiel sits down for a dinner. I'm sure he's had hundreds of times. He sort of recruits young, interesting, smart people to pitch him ideas. This is, his, as you can imagine, his business as a venture capitalist. And uh, he sits down from a man I identify as Mr. A in the book. This is a 26-year-old college student who basically pitches to Teal a solution to this Gawker problem um, that is essentially calling Gawker on the bluff we were just talking about, that in fact there are causes of action and that if a plaintiff were willing to go the distance 
a lot of Gawker's a lot of Gawker's articles might not hold up in a court of law, particularly in uh, certain jurisdictions. And he, this, Mr. A, pitches to Teal that he thinks it would take about three to five years and roughly ten million dollars to sort of test this theory. And uh, it's a pretty remarkable pitch for this sort of unproven young man to make. And he makes it to Teal, and and Teal sort of agrees on the spot. You know, by 2012, Teal is worth you know, a few billion dollars. Um, Gawker poses both this sort of personal existential threat to him, but also, you know, being on the board of Facebook and Palantir and, and and the business interest that he's now accumulated, Gawker is probably an economic and a financial threat uh, as well. In what way? Well, if, if the website that will run sort of an unsourced, unattributed outing of you I guess you would you would also sit there and imagine what what rumor they might post about Facebook or about Mark Zuckerberg or about, you know, Palantir's data collection methods. You could see how uh, a a site like Gawker would pose significant, uh, significant liability to to anyone whose whose interests are in the billions of dollars. And, And I'm actually not trying to imply that Teal here was was motivated by greed. I'm saying purely from a defensive standpoint, if there's a media outlet that will publish rumors, and, and I was the director of marketing at American Apparel, and I mean, we would see articles from Gawker, which were very poorly sourced or very poorly attributed, you know, affect the stock price of the company on a daily basis. Uh, you know, the, the market moves on news, and Gawker was big enough by 2000. 11, 2012, that they had the ability to, to move the market. They destroyed careers of politicians for good reason. You know, they'd, they'd hit Apple uh, very hard when they got a, a stolen prototype of an iPhone, for instance. You know, Gawker was a, a very powerful media outlet, and, and Teal had a variety of interests that were probably threatened by that. So the rest of the book, a chunk of the book, is uh – the discovery by this process that this 26-year-old starts in motion, the TLOKs and funds, um, involving a sex tape of Hulk Hogan uh, where he brings suit. And Gawker doesn't expect to lose this suit because why? <clears throat> right. So so in 2011, the, the conspiracy goes into motion and Teal sort of just looks for an opportunity for an additional year. And it's not until 2012 that that Gawker runs this uh, sex tape of, of Hulk Hogan, and it's sort of the exact opportunity, which I, I go into in the book, that that Teal is looking for. It's it's uh, it's not a First Amendment case necessarily. It's a privacy case. It's got jurisdiction in a small court in Florida with with very strong privacy uh, uh, privacy uh, infor- rights in, in that state. Uh, there's also a potential copyright claim. But I, again, I think Gawker doesn't take it seriously for a couple of reasons. So one, the case is quickly tossed out of federal court. So Gawker thought, well, of course, it will also get tossed out of, of Florida court. But, but also it goes to the fact that Gawker had run tapes like this many times. And the lawsuits had either been dropped or they'd been settled for at most you know, a uh, hundred or so thousand dollars. And so the idea that this case, which – which Hogan, uh, represented by a lawyer that Teal had found, um, 
that, that Hogan was going to win $100 million, which is what he'd sued for, just seemed ludicrous. And it seemed like Hogan was playing the exact same playbook that all celebrities play, which is you threaten to sue, you saber rattle, and then you're not willing to go to trial because you don't want to see this thing broadcast in front of the media over and over and over again. And eventually you settle for a token amount. And I don't want to give away any of the plot twists, but suffice it to say that what actually happens in this lawsuit um, is, uh, you know, it's it's hard to believe. It, it, it takes so many uh, extraordinary turns, and what actually we we learned about the case itself through your writing, Ryan, is just it, it, it's you couldn't make it up. It, it, it's re- it's just ridiculous and and riveting. And the point, only point I want to make now. Before we now turn to the bigger issues around the, this this story, uh, the only point I want to make now is that as Hulk Hogan goes to trial and as Gawker prepares to defend itself against this case, which it assumes it's going to win and you're telling her the story, um, none of the participants, none of the direct participants, Hulk Hogan, his team of lawyers, has any idea – that Peter Thiel is funding it, and that's really the conspiracy. And and that was in some ways Thiel's brilliance. You know, Thiel hires Mr. A. Mr. A hires Charles Harder, who's the attorney, and then Charles Harder reaches out to Terry Bollea, aka Hulk Hogan, um, to to operate to to actually pursue the case. And this is more or less the same process in a number of ancillary cases that Teal also pursues, not knowing at the outset that the Hogan case would be so uh, definitive. And so, yeah, so Teal has set up a system where his identity is obscured uh, almost th- at some point, I guess, three layers deep. And that allows uh, him to operate in the shadows. And it also makes it very difficult for Gawker to have really any suspicion that this isn't just an ordinary celebrity fighting a pretty typical news story uh, in in Gawker's archives. And so everyone thinks it's business as usual. But in fact, the the calculation has been uh, has been drastically changed. And we're not giving anything away. If you're a net savvy person, uh, Gawker doesn't exist anymore. Uh, You can you can find the. Uh, if you Google Gawker, you'll pull up their um, – I don't know what you want to call it – their tombstone, essentially, um, their epitaph. Um, the sex tape of Hulk Hogan doesn't exist in, in any public way. You can't find it. Um, and at the time of the suit, which I do remember vaguely that, that there was a Hulk Hogan sex tape lawsuit with Gawker, uh, nobody knows it's Peter Thiel. Right. <laughs> which is unbelievable, and yet eventually we find out – so finish this part of the narration. How do we find out? Well, I think the, the point that you just raised is a very good one, which is that as I looked for this, there is very little in the way of precedent in terms of an individual sort of going to war with a media outlet and then not only winning, but sort of winning in such catastrophic fashion, right? There's been large media judgments against outlets before, but very rarely do those do those outlets sort of it forced the immediate bankruptcy of said publication, which is what happened with Gawker. And then for about two months after the verdict, the verdict comes in in, in mid-March of 2016. It's not until May, uh, late May of 2016, that even really strong rumors of a backer 
begin to emerge. And then uh, the the story is broken by Forbes and then confirmed by the New York Times. Um, I, it's probably because Thiel had begun to sort of become so proud of what he'd done that he he told more and more people. And, and eventually that the, the news got out. You know, the secret was just held by too many people. And and while it's happening, it's not that interesting. But after the event, after the verdict has come in, I think it, it was only in, it was in some ways inevitable that the public, that journalists would want to fa- find out how the hell this could have happened. And and so Teal, it was sort of there was a ticking clock on on Teal's secrecy. And Teal said to me when I interviewed him that he he believed that secrets uh, tend to have an expiration date and that, that this one probably did, too. So uh, the conspiracy theory becomes confirmed as a conspiracy in May of 2016. And ironically, that's a story that would have been broken by Gawker if it existed at the time, perhaps, but it doesn't. Gets but broken that, no, by- that is that that is very ironic. And, and Teal would say that to me is what does it say that a journalistic media outlet that specializes in, uh, you know, sort of investigative journalism as they saw it or, you know, Gawker – Gawker's sort of first and last article was supposed to be like how things work, right? That they, they the inside scoop, the inside scoop. And here when their life depended on it, uh, <laughs> they were not able to see how the inside scoop or what was really happening. And in fact, uh, one of Gawker's editors uh, spoke for a documentary about the, these events. And he was saying, you know, we scarcely could have believed something so conspiratorial uh, could have happened. And, you know, my sort of rejoinder in the book is that's precisely why it did happen. And then finally, um, the other change that happens is that a lot of people who had no stake in the game, what we might call Adam Smith impartial spectators, yes, uh, rejoiced when Gawker was destroyed because they said, you know, this is a na- there's a nastiness here. Um you know, revealing humiliating things, often about not so famous people, uh, and, and ruining lives. And of course, some lives you could argue deserve to be ruined, but a lot of the some of the lives they ruined, at least in your telling, uh, seems should seem like they shouldn't have happened. And so, a lot of people rejoiced when Gark was destroyed. And then, when they found out that it was a really rich person who destroyed it, there was an enormous backlash that yep. this was a terrible uh, precedent. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just describe that that swing. Well, that, that's right. When it was uh, a celebrity versus a media outlet, you could conceivably believe that this is a sort of David and Goliath story. That and Hulk that Hogan's, Hogan, Hulk Hogan's Hulk, kind of a lovable celebrity. He's, he's sort of a mock celebrity in a way, right? He's a, he's a professional yeah. wrestler. And and I think that professional wrestling tie is part of this too, right? We we love to have the 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 good guy and the bad guy. That is the plot of basically every professional wrestling match. <laughs> and Gawker had sort of behaved so egregiously that Hogan was the sort of hero and Gawker was the heel. And so when Hogan triumphs, it seems like oh, okay, look, this is uh, th- this is the little guy beating the the big guy, or there's some poetic justice here. Um, and, and in fact, legally, that was also the interpretation. The, the New York Times itself uh, had, had a, a number of uh, – impaneled a number of experts, and the, the experts basically go, look, the precedent here is that you can't run stolen cele- celebrity sex tapes. You can write about them, but you can't run the tapes themselves. That's basically the limit of, of what the implications of this are. And then two months later when Teal is revealed, the optics suddenly shift, and people are – you know. 
oh, what is the precedent of this? Is this very alarming? Well, the legal precedent, of course, is exact. It remains exactly the same and, and does not change. But the idea that a billionaire was able to bring this about in secret, no less, and over potentially it's sort of a personal grudge, which is how I think some people saw it, does alarm if not the average person, it certainly alarms people who write for media outlets for a living. And so there's been this sort of hysterical interpretation ever since, which is that, you know, every media outlet is now, you know, uh, uh, in, in grave danger uh, from Peter Thiel specifically or billionaires generally uh, who, who want to shut them down because they don't like what they're writing. And we're, we'll talk about that in a minute, but just to finish up the story, I just – I thought about this when I was reading the book or until we just talked about it. But uh, the whole Hulk Hogan lawsuit you know, felt in some dimension like just an extension of the world of professional wrestling, just theater. You wouldn't be yes. surprised if Andy Kaufman was the – was the his lawyer? Yeah. You, you, what's reality here? And and people said, as you point out, Hogan was maybe just doing this for publicity. It really wasn't. He wasn't deeply hurt. And what you find out in the book, without revealing any of the details, is that uh, there's a lot of at stake here for Hulk Hogan, and it um, there's a really um, extraordinary well, denouement a, for him. Th th there's an element of professional wrestling in the legal system itself, which is <laughs> like. True. Every lawyer is like, we're going to trial. We're going to win this. You know, this is we've got an amazing case. We're suing you for a trillion dollars. You know, there's this sort of extremeness and hyperbole in the system. And 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 then on the other side of things, it's like 90 percent of cases settle or even higher than 90 percent of cases settle. And they never do go to trial. And 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 the, the sort of legal system is actually quite boring in that way. You know, and so is, I think I think that was part of this as well. Yeah, this is where the the guy hits the other guy over there with a the chair, and the blood's real. It's not yeah. uh, it's not staged. Uh, Gawker really does go out of business. Nick Denton really does get uh, uh, goes into a personal bankruptcy as a result of the of the. Well, of, and, and there's a wrestling term for that. They call it a shoot, and that's when a match uh, that is scripted. The wrestlers break script and it becomes an actual fight. And and there's a moment where Teal actually passes this down to to Hogan through the intermediaries and says, you know, they think this is kayfabe. That's the wrestling term for fake. It's actually a shoot. It's going to be a real lawsuit. And I think in some ways, Gawker was just never believed this was going to trial, and and was sort of caught off guard when it did. So let's now let's get into the. The issues that are that are at stake here beyond the entertainment, which is tremendous. Uh, as I said, this is a book that uh, I really I couldn't put it down. The, the twists and turns, the portraits of the individuals are just you did a superb job. First thing I want to establish: How did you figure out what actually happened? How did how did Ryan Holiday, uh, not a Gawker employee, how did Ryan sure. Holiday come to be able to give us what appears to be inside information about Mister A, the person who proposed this, uh, about Peter Thiel about Nick Denton. Well, it, it is weird. One of the things that surprised me about this is I, I thought I would have to be entirely dependent on sort of access to these sources. It, when I actually sat down and I read the legal documents or something like 25,000 pages of legal documents, it became pretty clear to me as I finished them how, how little they'd actually been read by the media that had reported so extensively on this story. So this goes to that earlier part that like, 
hey, the media outlet says they investigate things, but in fact tend to stop at the superficial level because they just don't have time. And so being able to do this as a book, you know, I had a lot more time, I had a lot more resources. I could step back and actually look at this. But I also had the benefit of I was probably the only person on the planet who's who's been able to talk to both Peter Thiel and Nick Denton at any sort of length. So I interviewed those principals, and then through my access to those two people, I had access to A.J. Delario, who, who ran the, the Hogan uh, tape. I, had, I was the first and only person to speak uh, to, to Mr. A, and in fact broke his identity in the book, um, and, and Hulk Hogan and Charles Harder. So I actually sat down and talked to the people, and I think one of the things that I did was going into this going, I actually want to find out what happened. I'm not interested in saying whether this should have happened or shouldn't have happened. I think we need to start with what actually happened. And that intention gave me uh, both access to people, but then also gave me a willingness, a, a lens with which to see what actually happened. Whereas I think so much, so many other reporters writing about this were so incensed by the outcome and so alarmed by it that they that they frankly missed what actually occurred. One puzzle which I don't understand is, and I, you may have talked about it in the book, but if you did, you didn't talk about it at length. Uh, why didn't somebody restart Gawker the next day under Looker or some other name? You know, yeah. Nick Denton. Why did Nick Denton do it? Why did Nick Denton say, yeah, well, that didn't turn out so well. I'm, I'm out of money now, but this is a profitable idea, writing outrageous stuff. And if it only means that we can't run a sex tape, when you mentioned A.J. Delirio, you're really – you said he ran the tape. He was the editor, I think, responsible for running. He ran it on, on a Gawker website. Um, why didn't someone just restart and stay away from running video? It's complicated. So one, I think Gawker was less profitable than people thought. Gawker sort of projected this image as being this enormously profitable, huge, intimidating website. But the truth is they, they sort of could barely afford to litigate the case as they litigated it. They, they were sort of drowning under the legal bills as this dragged on. But they, they were they couldn't. The real precedent they were worried about was if this guy can win, then everyone's going to come after us. So I think it was less profitable than people thought, but it was very much a, a product of a unique place in time early in the internet. So as this is founded in the early 2000s, you know, Nick just starts this website in his living room and it becomes very quickly a media outlet that's doing tens of millions and then billions of pages a year. Um, if you were to start that today, you would need a lot more than a dining room table and a couple laptops. So Gawker had was created when blogs were new, when there's sort of this is sort of the new frontier of media, um, when there's not a lot of uh, uh, of sort of taking this medium seriously by both entrenched media outlets and sort of businesses and, and public figures. And so at being this uh, – Teal's argument to me at least when he talked to me about this was he believed that Gawker was, was sort of – uh, a one in a million company, and if it were to disappear, it it not only not would not be recreated, but people actually wouldn't miss the service that it provided. That it we would just go about our lives as if it never existed. And what's interesting is that now the domain name Gawker is sort of in limbo, but the the bankruptcy estate of Gawker still owns this domain. 
and who's going to get it is an open question. But a number of Gawker writers put together a crowdfunding campaign. They tried to raise $500,000 to buy the domain back, which is probably less than it would sell for anyway. So I'm not sure if even if they could have raised the half million would have been successful. But, you know, they they raised something like 17 percent of their stated goal. And and so in some ways that might be a reflection, too, of the fact that we enjoyed Gawker as this guilty pleasure while it existed. But it's not as if we wake up every day actually pining for the service that it provided. Well, there are a lot of places that still provide a version of it, of course. You could say sure. that the whole Internet is 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 some somewhat focused on salaciousness or the latest hot sure. story that people don't know about and, and you get the inside scoop. Um, now, this is a book partly about revenge, but it's more than that and, and a lot more than that. It reminded me of a topic we talk a lot about on Econ Talk, the bootlegger and Baptist phenomenon. In the case that we usually apply it, it's it's a politician justifying a, some regulation on on using high-minded ideals when, in fact, there's a self-interested motive that's being covered up. Certainly, Peter Thiel had high-minded ideal – excuse me, had a self-interest motive. He wanted revenge. But he also, at least the way you tell it, had an interest in making the world a better place and felt that – he wasn't just avenging an injustice. He was uh, making making the world better. Do you, th- do you think that – is that accurate in your mind about his his motivation? And do you think it's um, it's true? Do you think that the world is a better place without Gawker? Well, I think it goes – you know, it goes back to Thucydides, the, the sort of the three motivations that he said, you know, exist are fear, honor, and interest or self-interest. And I think Thiel is motivated in a, in a way between all three, right? There's the fear of his, his private life. Uh, his his uh, there's the, the his potential business interests, and then there's this sense that as a sort of you know idealist uh, big thinker that that maybe this is not a force for good in the world, and so I think it's all three of those. Whether this was a good thing or not, I think is really complicated, and, and it, it would almost change on a daily basis as I was writing the book and thinking about it. You know, it's hard talk to argue about, that. Talk about that evolution of your own feelings. Well, you know, I went into this as someone who has not only worked for and with people that have been very unfairly treated by Gawker, but myself have, have appeared on Gawker. In, in 2011, uh, I was uh, working at a company that was being sued by someone, and then mysteriously my emails were, were hacked into, and then they show up on Gawker. You know, Gawker had written negative things about me before. So when I went into this, there was an element for me that just said, oh, this was very much deserved. And yet, it's very hard to talk to someone who, you know, ends up having to mortgage their apartment to pay uh, to, you know, as, as part of bankruptcy proceedings and, and rent it out on Airbnb or, or to see, you know, 300 people put out of work and not kind of go, wow, that was, you know, is that's that's harsh. Right. That 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 is uh, a lot. So so just dealing with the people involved on all sides sort of makes you an invariably see this in a more human way. So I think that was part of it. Um, you know, Teal ends up backing Trump in the 2016 election, which sort of, I think, paints a, a color on some of this as well. So so my I would go back and forth on it, um, and, and, and I never – I tried. I ultimately, I decide not to take a stand one way or another. But as I was saying earlier, to sort of show how it happened 
and then leave it to the reader to decide a little bit more what it means. But I do think it's hard, it's hard to argue that the world in 2018 is, from a media standpoint, is better than how it was in 2007 or 2011. What, how much of that has to do with Gawker? How much of this has to do with you know, a number of other forces? I think it's impossible to clearly state one way or another. But I, I, I don't necessarily know if the world has like mag- been magically transformed by what happened. Yeah, you wrote a thoughtful essay. You've written a number of thoughtful essays in the aftermath of publishing the book, and we'll try to link to as many as I can find, But and you'll help me. Um, but you write – in one of them, you, you, you speculate, and you do this in the book as well. It's kind of a shocking speculation that we don't have enough conspiracies. Yeah. You say, what would the world look like if more people tried to change things, conspired to change things they found unjust, unfair, immoral, and you actually – raise the question of whether we have too few uh, yeah. conspiratorial activities. Normally, people look down on conspiracies. It's a negative word. It means yeah. it's, it's shadowy. It's secretive. It, it usually means – there's something nefarious about a, a conspiracy, and it's not just because it's a secret. It's basically a plot, and you actually raise the question of whether maybe we should do more of these. You want to try to defend that? Sure. Well, uh, part of this is, is sort of uh, – it is, is it comes from Teal, and you know Teal is this contrarian. He's really good at sort of posing interesting questions that maybe we wouldn't have considered otherwise. You know, famously in 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 an interview he gave with Marine Dowd, he was talking about whether corruption is a it it he was talking about corruption. I think in South America, and, and he's speculating. You know, is the reduced corruption a good sign or a bad sign? Maybe that means that actually the the economy there has become less dynamic. And and so uh, one of the arguments that I, I I thought to make in the book is that although although we can disagree with whether this should have happened or not, um, or or there's some subjectivity about whether Gawker was evil and whether it's good that they're gone or not, I am at least heartened or impressed by the sort of ruthless efficiency and hyper competence. On Teal's end, and in fact, was sort of repeatedly appalled and disappointed by the incompetence and mismanagement of of Gawker. And so, what I'm arguing in the book is, you can't you can't dispute that Teal set out to produce a change that he he thought Gawker was a force for evil in the world, and now they are no longer in the world. Right there, there might be some unintended consequences and some blowback. But he does accomplish what he set out to accomplish. And this was a thing that many, many powerful people agreed with him on, but despaired of being able to do anything about. And so I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by the sort of efficacy of it, that he managed to do this. He managed to do it in secret. Um, he managed to actually get a fair amount of people on board, you know, agreeing with at least the outcome. And, uh, and he did it because – the sort of traditional remedies had failed, right? Uh, Gawker wasn't a problem you could solve by writing a, an op-ed about or signing a petition. Um, it required this sort of, uh, you know, extra means. And, you know, he did it legally, right? He did right, it within literally the constraints, through the legal system. Within yeah. the constraints of the First Amendment. He didn't get the First Amendment uh, abolished. <laughs> and, right. then, and then, oh, great, we'll do that, and then we'll get Gawker. Right. There was no tra- there's no travesty of justice here. There, there was no criminal enterprise. There was no assassination attempt. What he did was he said, OK, look, the, the way that this should work isn't working. 
What's something that other people haven't tried? And, and you know, it, it is alarming, right? You look at our legal system and you think, uh, look, the people with the best case win. But had Hogan not been backed by Teal, it is almost certain that this case never would have gone to trial and he wouldn't have gotten the verdict, which the jury later said he deserved. And so um, what I guess my, my, my proposal is what other things are people, quote unquote, right about, but that that rightness isn't translating to might and 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 should more people try to to test that? And that that's one of the most provocative ideas in the book, and 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 it's it's an idea that that haunts me a little bit for for a lot of reasons. I think listeners will understand. Yeah, you know, F. A. Hayek quote, which I love: "The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design." A conspiracy is a design. It's a design to accomplish X. You point out that X was accomplished. That seems like really. Uh, impressive uh in theory you put and you put the word right in quotes because well that happened to be one that was we're, we're somewhat sympathetic to perhaps but yeah but there are a lot of we could think of we're not sympathetic to. Well, let me pick one that that i am sympathetic to and just uh maybe you think out loud with me about it i've often wondered whether uh the wealthy people of silicon valley um and we're not going to name them it, there's about 10 that are worth talking about but between the 10 of them they have a lot of money what if we could get all 10 of them and we'll throw in some people outside Silicon Valley. There's two in Seattle that might come to mind. Let's get these 12 people and let's say, um, let's get them in a room and let's get them to recognize something they all actually agree about already that the American public school system is not very good mm-hmm. and we should do something about it. They all think that's true. I think uh, they're all appalled at the current state of, of education in the K through 12 arena in America. And, Let's say they all could agree on what needs to be done, and in my strange, peculiar worldview, that would be to get the government out of the funding of public education and to – out of education and to rely on self-interested parents and philanthropic institutions to protect people who don't have the means to pay for school on their own. Uh, that's my crazy worldview. Uh, sure. That crazy worldview scares a lot of people. Some of you are listening. You think that's a bad idea. You have a lot of uh, affection, and and I could be wrong about my view. Uh, your, your affection may be deser- it should be is appropriate that that the public school system is the is the backbone of the American way of life, and we should we should do everything. We should have a conspiracy to make it better. But my view is that it's the other way around. So these twelve people get together. They don't tell anybody because that could mobilize the teachers' unions and everybody else, and they conceive of this end-around system. It might involve MOOCs, online education. It might involve uh, political action. It might involve some things that were not so attractive, Uh, planting stories in the media about bad things that the public school system does. Um, Is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. My first thought is, oh, it's a good thing. Then my second thought is, well – I like it because in my direction, if it weren't right. in my direction, man, I think I'd like it so much. That 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 is the that is the interesting element of it all. I mean, the word the, the methodology is 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 neutral, right? It's just a, it's a strategy like any other strategy. It just happens to be the least transparent of strategies by definition, and I think that's typically why conspiracies tend to be used in desperate situations, right? It's sort of the the means of last resort. Um, 
because you're by by keeping the secret, you're almost admitting that you're keeping the secret because if you told everyone what they were doing, they would, as as you even in your example, mobilize against it. But the hypothesis is that if I were to achieve the result that I want, things would be transformatively better and everyone would thank me for it or the world would be a better place. And so that is the complicated element of it. I mean, a couple of interesting conspiracies for me. And you could argue in, in some ways a, a lot of the sort of pivotal moments of the civil rights movement were were somewhat conspiratorial. You know, Rosa Parks doesn't it, the, the idea that she was just riding a bus one day and said, you know, today I've had enough is just factually not what occurred. Right. This was a, a sort of a planned uh, this was a planned event and it was planned uh, to bring about a specific end. And and, you know, more conspiracy, more conspiracy theory. You know, right now, some people are speculating that somebody is funding Stormy Daniels legal bills against uh, against Donald Trump. And so what, what, what's interesting to me about the Stormy Daniels example is that the same people who were appalled by Teal's playbook are probably cheerleading of the exact same playbook being uh, operated uh, against a different opponent in a different uh, scenario. But, but the conspiracy is essentially the same, uh, and it's using a sort of technicality in the legal system the same way. And so it, it, it is interesting. And, and to me, the book was to sort of put this bigger kind of uncomfortable question out there and get us at the very least to think about it. Because I think one of the things that allows the really bad conspiracies to happen is that we are so unaware of them. And perhaps Russia, a more sort of conspiratorial country, ha- has has used that to our disadvantage in some ways. We we sort of believe the Cold War was over and people didn't do stuff like this anymore. Yeah. And and that's why we were caught sleeping. Yeah. The other part of it though, which which you know, I alluded to but didn't make clear, is that it's not just that it might achieve something that I don't agree with. It's it's gonna achieve something that any any conspiracy we might imagine, it could achieve some things we have no idea about. So right. the unintended consequence idea that, you know, it's not just that let me say. Let me rephrase that. In a complex world where reality is emergent, uh, it's very hard to steer things. So conspiracies, in some sense, are inherently difficult. This is a very narrow conspiracy that your book's about: destroying yes. a, a media outlet, transforming the American education system, uh, transforming public attitudes toward you pick it, whatever is your uh, key area. Those those things. One, because of complexity, they're hard to achieve, much harder to achieve. And number two, uh, you don't control them after a while. They take on a life of their own, right. and they can spiral out of control. And it, it, it just raises an interesting moral question uh, that I that I struggle with and have, have mentioned on the program in passing that that you know it, it's hard to be active when you're not sure that every action you take is inevitably going to lead to something that's good. It can lead to a, a form of passivity. Uh, I know you're a Stoic. Uh, I'm, uh, I have a bit of Stoicism in me, and it's my Hayekian Stoicism that often leads me to say, you know, I don't feel confident enough to do anything about X, Y, or Z. And yet at the same time, I know that if I just sit around and observe the world passively, I, I feel I've failed. Um, 
that that's the tension, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the the, fa- the famous example is the you know the Republican senators conspire to assassinate Caesar, who has made himself dictator, and they cause a they they succeed in, in killing the dictator, but then they cause a civil war in which you know many many people die, and then Rome permanently ceases to become uh, ceases uh, being a Republican, and and Octavian becomes emperor, and so th- there. What, what's interesting, you know, my, my other books are about Stoicism. There is this tension in Stoicism itself about conspiracies. Uh, do they make the world better? Um, do they make the world worse? Or are there these unintended consequences? And, you know, do you stick with this sort of purity of your motivation to do nothing? Do you have your idealism that your conspiracy can change everything when the truth is there are always these unintended consequences? And, you know, the, it, the other the other example would be sort of the history of the CIA is like sort of blowback after blowback. Every time we try to conspire and get involved somewhere, it tends to, you know, not necessarily make things better. However, it, it strikes me as being very alarming that that the solution to that would be or that the response to that would be resignation or, you know, as our as our as our friend Tyler has, has called this sort of complacency uh do is the the threat of unintended consequences justification for the sort of morass of complacency that we currently have as a society? I'm not sure that's any better. Yeah, I raise this in the Jordan Peterson episode when he he talks about a principle, one of his twelve rules for life that I'm very um, fond of, which you know in many ways live try to live my life by, which is fix your own garden before you end up. Uh, trying to solve um, everybody else's uh, problems, sure. and there's something very beautiful about that. Uh, it's just, it's really a you know it's it's a, it's a fundamental statement about epistemological humility. It's saying I don't know enough to fix your garden, Ryan. I'm not going to tell you how to run your life. Uh, I'm, and yet at the same time, if that's what everybody does, some nefarious folk can take over the the, the parts of the system that do have levers and, and do a lot of really evil things that make it really hard to fix your own garden. So there's a yeah. trade-off there that's not – I don't think it's solvable. I think it's something a person should be should be aware of. Um, let's talk about Mr. A. Uh, yeah. I found it strange that you didn't identify him in the book, and you didn't tell us why you didn't identify him. Uh, so yeah, I'd like you to mention that in passing, but I'm really more interested in an essay you wrote recently about what you learned from that dinner – yeah, uh, about auditioning versus interviewing that I think is very profound and extremely useful, especially for young people who might be listening. Well, what was fascinating to me in my first interview with Teal, as I was thinking about doing this book, he sort of offhandedly mentions this Mr. A character. And, and you know, this is like one of the most reported stories probably of the last decade, the, the idea of a, you know, a professional wrestler suing a media outlet and then a billionaire being involved. The idea that there was still a secret, that there was still like a whole person that not only did no one know their name, but they didn't even know that they'd played a role in what happened was just, you know, astounding to me. And just to review, um, just to review, this is the 26 year old kid who comes to Teal at a dinner in Berlin. It's basically a, a, a one time opportunity for this kid to put something interesting in front of Peter Teal. And of all the things he puts in front of him, it's not an idea for a unicorn company in Silicon Valley that's going to be worth a billion dollars, some app. Right. It's a it's a strategy and a and a game plan for personal revenge that the three to five year part turned out to be exactly right. I don't know about the ten yes. million part, but I don't know if you got that right in terms of the budget. 
Club, certainly in in the ballpark, and and so yeah, so I was the first one to talk to him, and the only one, as far as I know. And our arrangement was that he was willing to talk to me, provided that I I wouldn't name him. I I do know his name. It, it struck me as a pretty minor compromise uh, in in, it, in exchange for getting the perspective of the person who one had the idea and two executed the the vast majority of it. To, to be able to add that perspective, but not necessarily put a name on it, it struck me as uh, to, to do the opposite, to not include it because I couldn't give his legal name, struck me as, as, as a ridiculous, uh, you know, ridiculous logic. So I end up making, making the exchange. I don't belabor it in the book. I, I sort of feel like it's on other media outlets to, to take the ball and run with it. Uh, if, if they do that, that's it's great dis- for them. It's discoverable. But you did mention earlier in the our conversation today that you reveal his name in the book. I, it, I read every word of the book as far as I know. I don't think you reveal No, 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 no. no. I, I'm the first to reveal his, his identity. His role, not his identity, his Correct. his Correct. his uh, his character in the in the plot. Yes, uh, okay. exactly. And and to go to your point about what happened, I mean, yeah. there the idea that you know it, it struck me like I I've actually had not dinner, but I I went to an event at Teal's house when I was about twenty six years old. That's probably twenty five, and you know I remember flying out there, and you know this is going to be really cool, and I just won it. You know I just winged it. I just said, oh, I'm going to Peter's house. This is very cool. You know it. it it was interesting to think like, oh man, this guy was just operating on a whole other level. Like he went in there, he had an idea, he had a plan, he'd researched it, he'd mapped out what he hoped to accomplish from this chance encounter. And you know, this is similar. Uh, we see that in football, they, they talk about this. There's sort of the coach that goes in and goes, "Hey, uh, I'd like the job." And then there's the coach that comes in with a binder that describes exactly how they're going to do the job, what conditions they want the job under, you know, what sort of budget, um, what their timeline is, et cetera, et cetera. And it just struck me that, that th- there was a lesson there in this 26 year old. Again, you can agree or disagree with what he pitched, but you can't, you can't argue with the fact that his pitch was successful and that it was, it wasn't transformative for the parties involved. And so I, I just liked the the sort of ambition, the the willingness to put yourself out there, despite really having no qualifications whatsoever. Um, you know, just it struck me as very earnest and and impressive in that way. Well, I think Peter Thiel was impressed with it too, and he might have been impressed even if he hadn't, if he didn't think that the particular plot and plan in that binder was going to be. Uh, successful. I think that's probably true of some NFL coaches when they interview. Yeah. The, the owners might not think, I don't like that idea, or I, th- I think uh, we shouldn't practice on Tuesday afternoons. But whatever it is, the fact that the, that there's a meticulousness, which I think yeah. appeals to everybody, uh, regardless of the quality of it, meticulousness has a certain has a certain virtue in people's minds. Maybe not always justified, but it certainly is is impressive. But I think the the phrasing I loved in your essay is an audition versus an interview. So many times, especially when we're young, don't know much about the world, we go into an interview thinking, as you point out in the article, I'll wear a good suit. Um, I'll, I'll make sure my hair looks good. Uh, right. I'll brush my teeth. And uh, I'll make sure I don't fiddle with things while I'm talking. You know, you have a set of rules. Yeah. But what you don't think about is two things. How much research do I need to do before this meeting to be prepared for it? And, se- and more importantly, or as importantly, 
what do I need to do with that research to be appealing to these folks? And you give an example in the your essay, and I've I think I probably mentioned on the air so many times. Young people write uh, job letters where they talk about how much they want the job, how much it would yeah. mean to them, how valuable it would be to them, as if their urge, their desire is a selling point. When in fact they should be thinking about something else, which is what can I do for you? Why is right. this good for you? Not good for we know it's good for for the interviewer, <laughs> the interviewee. Right. You need to expl- the interviewee needs to make the case for why it's good for the interviewer. Well, I get a lot of those emails myself, having been sort of mentored and trained by a, a writer to become a writer. I get a lot of emails and and, and they're very nice. And I, I certainly feel a little strange complaining about it. But the emails basically go like this. They go, hi, Ryan, I'm a huge fan of your writing. I want to do what you were able to do for Robert Greene. Please hire me. I'll work for you for free. But And, and the, in their thinking, the the lack of payment is what makes them attractive them a compelling candidate and and if you really it, i thought this when i was their age as well it wasn't until i got older and and worked for more people and set up my own business that i realized that most companies don't have sort of it's not like there's a whole stack of tasks over here that the company isn't doing because it can't afford to pay someone to do them yeah. it's 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 that they either don't know that they have anything that needs to be done or that there's a shortage of good people to actually do them that they feel like they can trust with those things. And so it's actually, it's not how will, how little are you willing to be paid, but what expertise are you bringing to the table? What, what are you especially good at? What, what can you do that can make the life, the the life of the person you're hitting up easier in one way or another, that's going to get you the answer you want. Um, those coaches that came in that we were talking about earlier, it it's not like they're like, hey, I have a really good plan. Also, I'll do it for free. Actually, they're demanding to be paid a lot of money. Um, it's that they have they are they're demonstrating or signaling how value. seriously they're going to take it <laughs> and how much value they're going yeah. to give in exchange for that salary. Yeah, and and of course, when you're young, you don't have much to offer. Uh, I get a lot of people ask me for advice sometimes about how to get a job in X, Y, or Z, maybe not as many as you, I'd guess. But, you know, I always say to them, you have to be aware of the fact that you don't have much to contribute and that your desire to work there is not one of those things. Um, Totally. And so you've got to figure out a way that you're a value. One way to do that, of course, is to do that research to show that when you come to a task, you give it your all. And it's not so much necessarily what comes out of the research, but that you would signal in advance that you're a hard worker and that you will persevere. And that means you may be a value just for that skill. It's not a trivial skill, by the way. It's an incredibly rare and important skill. Simply, And we know that because many of you listening out there who are, say, under the age of 30, of which we have many listeners who are, are going to hear this and maybe not always implement it. It's unpleasant <laughs> to do a lot of research before an interview. You say to yourself, well, I'll just answer the questions and I'll sound smart. But a lot of times... You know, the, the famous example is to stick with football is, you know, Peyton Manning, uh, when he came out of college and was draft was ready for the NFL draft, a lot of teams talked to him, of course, beforehand and worked out, worked him out or saw him work out. And uh, the teams that took him, that wanted to take him, uh, were overwhelmingly impressed, the Colts being the team that, that ultimately took him, uh, were incredibly impressed by the fact that he ran the interview. He asked the questions. Right. He wanted to right. show – he wanted to know if they were worthy of him, not the other way around. Now, there's an arrogance there if you're not careful that can, that can turn someone off. But 
the idea that you have – just make it simple in terms of practical advice. When you go into an interview as a young person, you want to have some questions, not just to answer the questions that the interviewer asks. You want to have some questions that you want them to answer for you about the nature of the job and what it will involve and whether you'll learn anything. And what are the opportunities for personal growth? And to show that you've done some research on the company in advance. Um, that's, that's really, really important. Well, I, I tell a story in, in my book, The Obstacles, the way about George Clooney. George Clooney you know, went to audition after audition as a young actor and, and very rarely had much success. And it wasn't until later in his career that he realized that the audition is a problem for the people giving the audition, that they want to find an actor for the role. It's not as if they're not going to cast the role. And so going into it, realizing, oh, if I present myself as the solution to your problem rather than the person who is uh, you know, dying for your approval, that's going to come off very differently and, in fact, increase my chances of success. And, and I think that's, that's similar, too, and that's probably why you know, it works with Peyton Manning or Nick Saban or whatever. When they're they're interviewing, they're going, oh, this owner or this GM is desperate to get a head coach. They don't want to have to interview 97 candidates and waste a bunch of time. They want someone who can show they have what it takes. And, and as you said, it's not uh, how badly you want the job that they're looking for. It's I've always been how a Colts, well you can do it. I've always been a Colts fan. Right. <laughs> it's right. not a good argument. Uh, no. But it, it's interesting how appealing that argument is. Just, uh, but just to close this, this part of the conversation, I, I, I just want to emphasize this distinction you used in the essay, an audition versus an interview. An interview is some place where you get asked questions and you answer them. An audition is where you present yourself in, a, in as best a light as possible to make yourself appealing. And I think it's just a, it's a very different mindset going into it, and it's, uh, it's very useful to, to, um, to think about it that way. I've, I've told the story yeah. before, but it's, it's always worth – to me, it's worth telling again of you know, FedEx would interview candidates supposedly, but it's true, where they'd put 20 people in a room and they'd say, okay, we're going to give you – uh, half an hour to uh, craft a five-minute talk to introduce yourself, and um, it's a jo- this is a job interview setting. These mm-hmm. twenty people want to work for FedEx. FedEx is going to see how they do on their feet and how they well they craft their speech, and so the people immediately start busily taking notes and planning their talk, and and then they one by one get up and give their talk. And what FedEx does supposedly is that or did I don't know if they still do it, but what they do is. They don't grade the people on the quality of their talk. They grade their the people on the quality as audience members. They're looking for people ah. in the audience of the, the the of the job applicants to see how they signal to the speaker that they're empathetic, that they're rooting for them, that they they're trying to be helpful. The people who you'd think this is a good strategy. People who during the other people's presentations keep scribbling and work and polishing their five minute talk are actually hurting themselves because FedEx is noting, oh, they're just self-interested. They just want to use this time to the maximum. They don't right. feel any camaraderie with the other speakers. That's just an, ex- I mean, that's just an amazing,ly clever thing on every on every count. I just love that. Totally. Um, were you afraid to write this book? I got the implication, or the intu- the um, intuition at various points that you were a little bit afraid of it. I was a little afraid to interview for it actually because there there is an ominous power that hangs over the book uh, of of things happening in the dark. Things, wheels turning in the background that you don't yeah. see that that crush uh, unknowing individuals, and certainly Gawker was steamrolled by Peter Thiel's strategy. And um, talk about that. 
I, I, I was, to be perfectly honest. I mean, first off, you're writing a book about uh, a, a guy that just, you know, just destroyed a media outlet because he didn't like what they, they wrote right on a superficial level. Yeah, that's, um, that's a- and, and then it's also a case that is very much radicalized the media, right? So the media, uh, it, it was a delicate line to, to walk on the one hand, you don't want to egregiously offend the person who, who, who took down the media outlet. But then if you're at all too positive about that person, the media will, uh, the media will attack you. And also as a reputationally, the last thing I want to do is be seen as carrying water for anyone. And so there was some logistics sort of administrative details to nail down, you know, when I was uh, sort of wooing the various sources that I needed to talk to the, the conditions that I was willing to, to give or not give, that was part of it. And then also just, uh, you know, the, the delicate subject matter that, that has been very polarizing. And then on top of that, I was scared just because it's very different than my other books. And so the, the fear there was just, you know, just sort of failing. What, what if I can't, what if I can't do the material justice? So that, that kept me up at at night quite often as well. Um, it was a a really ambitious timeline on, on the project as well. So from, from start to finish, I would say terror was probably the, uh, predominant emotion that I felt as I was writing. There are a lot of great quotes of this book, um, many of them taken from classical writers, uh, Roman, Greek. Uh, I think you quoted Thucydides earlier. That's, I think, a first for econ talk. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so congratulations. But one thing that struck me, if you'd asked me what quote would belong in this book, I would have said, revenge is a dish best served cold, uh-huh. uh, which is a reference to the fact that Teal and there's a lot of them in your book about patience. Teal waited uh, nine years, and he probably would have waited longer to to deal this death blow to Gawker. And yet, I'm pretty sure that quote's not in the book. Instead, there yeah. are a bunch of quotes I didn't know, which I loved. Uh, and part of that is, I think the naive reader of the book will say that, oh, you wrote this, you had this lurid, uh, gossipy um, X-rated story to tell. And then you decided to add some quotes. So you looked up <laughs> revenge in in a book of quotations, or you looked up patience or conspiracy. And But I'm pretty sure that's not what you did, because I've read an essay that you wrote about how you read. And I would love for you to talk just a little about how you keep track of quotes that or ideas that that you want to have for later. And most of us don't do that. I, I've mentioned on the air, I think, that I, until recently, meaning maybe 10, 15 years ago, I, I never wrote in a book that I read. Right. I keep my books until 15 years ago. I kept my books literally pristine. Not only did I not write them, you'd have trouble knowing that I'd read them. I didn't like cracking <laughs> the binding. I wouldn't open them all the way. And people who open books flat on a surface or turn them, to my horror, upside down to hold their place You know, on page 173 – uh, which I know eventually cracks the spine and then the pages fall out. Those kind of things just, I, I, they make me deeply uneasy. But in later years, recent years, I've gotten better at that. I don't mind that my books are thumb, well-thumbed and that I've written in them. And I, I regret that I didn't write in them more or do something else. You do something else. Talk about what you do. 
I mean, I'm looking at my to-do list here for today, and it says notes on two books. So I, I, I read, and as I read, I read a lot. Obviously, it's partly my job. And I read a lot, and I fold pages and mark things that I like as I'm reading them. Uh, a- anything that catches my attention, I mark. And then a couple weeks later, I, I sit down and I go back through that book, and I transfer all that material onto four-by-six note cards. And so today I'm going to do that with at least two books that I've read. Which is crazy, you know, Ryan. Don't you know we live in a digital age? You've already know. Just just read them the, in your Kindle and highlight them. No, it's it's the process for me of, of one marking it down the first time, then letting it marinate, then forcing it to sort of actually transfer it by hand. Although sometimes with really long passages, I might type them up. But still, again, that having that sort of flow through me, print it out write it out, put it on a card, then have that physical card. I mean, I'm staring behind my computer. Is the is the box of note cards that uh, Conspiracy uh, was built around? And so there's like 18 chapters in the book, then an intro and a conclusion. So let's call it 20 different files. And in each file is the note cards of the material that um, that, that that part of the, 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 the sort of raw materials of that chapter. So quotes stories, uh, you know, research, things that came up in my interviews, dates on the timeline of this whole insane series of events. And, and so, yeah, so I, I, I read very actively. I transfer that, organ, that information and then I organize that information. And that's, that's what I build it around. You know, the, the quote you mentioned, revenge, revenge is a dish best served cold. I, I sort of didn't use it on purpose just because it's kind of become a cliche. Yeah, it's too easy. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and I actually, I don't know who actually said that. So I try to use things that, uh, you know, I, I can, I can attribute in, in one way or another as well. Um, I, I'm not cheating here. Or I'm not using my, I, I put my phone on airplane mode and, and I close all my browsers when I'm interviewing folks. I want to say Gore Vidal. I don't know if that's true. We'll find out, I don't and I'll be so. corrected. I, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's much older than that. Yeah, I su- suspect. That, well, I bet there's a version that's two, that's three thousand twenty five hundred years old. That may not be worded that exact same way because it's in Latin right. or Greek. Because um, it's a pretty deep truth, uh, I think. Yeah, you know, there yes. is a the, the hot revenge. The, the the dish revenging yourself quickly is is one's uh, first thought, and one's second thought is the point of that quote, which is maybe wait a while. Well, it's uh, a weird thing, thinking about that quote for this book. I guess I always thought that the served cold meant the meant the 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 actual food item, right? Like that you don't want, like you know, is the pizza hot or cold, right? And then it was only in researching this book and thinking about that quote specifically more deeply, I realized no, it's that you don't want to burn yourself carrying the dish. That's mm. that's the truth of that quote. Ooh. And and I think that's what's so impressive about what Teal did here uh, is that he was he was careful enough. Although there's, you could argue there's still some burning, but he was careful enough that this didn't explode all over him. He was he 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 had the patience to wait until he was rational to set in motion his plan rather than reacting emotionally. Yeah, that's a really deep insight because you're right. In a, you might be totally right because the it could have been worded, revenge is a dish best eaten cold. Yeah. The fact that it's served cold it reinforces your point about uh, just letting the explosive aspect of it uh, calm down. But they both could be true. And I, the sure. other, But the other point is that uh, – 
I think revenge is a really bad emotion to harbor. Um, yes. So it's an interesting question of whether it should be served at all or eaten at all. It's it's it, to me it's um, uh, it's grudges are, are better laid aside if you can handle it or to at least well, find a way to lay them aside. Absolutely. And there's sort of one expression. I don't know where this one is from, but it, when you set out on a journey of revenge, first dig two graves. So that's one. <laughs> and, and, and then the other is, and this one is from Marcus Aurelius. He says, you know, the best revenge is to not be like that. And I think that, that that's how I personally try to live my life. You know, is that the best revenge is to just not be like the person that you're trying to get revenge on? Because very tip, very often, the like, I, it wasn't. I don't think it was particularly fun to be Nick Denton, nor would I have wanted to work at Gawker. I think these people were suffering as uh, as a, suffering by the, through their very sins. However, the world uh, injustice is still injustice, and somebody has to do something about it. So it's more complicated than just saying, oh, well, I'm just not going to be a bad person. But I do, uh, I do someone think, has to do something about bad people. Yeah, but I do think it's important when you think about what career to, to, to take to try to find a career that isn't based on a zero-sum game, that isn't based on deception, that isn't based on fraud. And you know, ideally, market forces make the, those kind of careers not very lucrative, at least in the long run. But we know that's not true in the short run. There are many ways that people harm other people through their their jobs and, and – um, I think you can get really rich sometimes doing those things, and it's it's better to make less money doing something else because it, it, you're digging two graves. It's a different point than you're making with yes. the revenge, but I think it's true. Uh, let's close with um, – the book's been out for, what, a, a couple months, a month or two now? Yeah. Uh, what kind of reaction have you gotten, and, and what kind of criticism have you received personally, and, and what are you de- how are you dealing with that? It, it's, been, it's been it's been – it's been really interesting. You know, uh, it, it was my first book to be reviewed in the Times. It was reviewed in the Post. Uh, I've, I've heard from a number of, like, really important sort of powerful people that liked it. So it's been it's been interesting in that sense, just the sort of validation of, like, oh, I, I think I got this right. And, you know, you reached out to me. It was very nice to hear from you. And I, I, I was particularly heartened by the fact that you said you didn't think you would like the book and you ended up liking it. To me, that's sort of high praise for a writer. And then it's, you know, it's been interesting. It's just so different than my other books. Uh, it, it's like Dylan going electric. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Well, a little, I, I maybe not. I wouldn't quite, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that parallel myself, but I appreciate it. Uh, so, so it's, you know, it's just been interesting. You take career risks and, and I, I think it's paid off in the short term, but how it will pay off in the long term remains to be seen. And, and so I'm, I'm just, I'm going to put my head down and start the next project. I'm I'm very happy with the book, and I've loved the reactions. And then I'll, I'll let the sales be what they are. Have you received any criticism for the way you told the story that you left out certain things? My impression is is that some people have been uh, critical of the way that you framed it, or you left out this, that, or the other. Yeah, which yeah, is look, which is inevitable when you have a book that's under a th- it's, it's a shortish book it's not a long book but uh it's inevitable that a book of finite length leaves things out but yes, what are some yes. of those issues and how how would you respond to them well c- clearly there are not many people at gawker who love the book which was to be expected uh, i thought it was interesting you know the 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 media loved writing about the sensational elements of the case but then i feel like uh Maybe the book's sort of deeper meditation on the deeper issues got 
got sort of was too complicated for you know a television appearance let's say yeah so it's been it, that that's been a somewhat disappointing aspect of this and yeah there's there's been lots of criticism there, there's been people who are like oh you're in bed with teal other people on teal's side of things and said oh you're in you're in you know you're how could you defend these people you know the, the, these people being gawker so to me one one of the things i took from it is like look if you piss off both sides that's a pretty good sign that you you actually did your job. So uh, the the none of the criticism has been let's say factual, uh, like I got the facts wrong, and none of it has been stylistically that I didn't do a good job writing it. And so if people love it or hate it, that part of it's outside my control and not what I focus on. So I'm going to close with a quote, and you can comment on it, and we'll we'll wrap it up. Or you can just okay. let it, you can just let it sit. All right. Uh, you say the following in a, in a time is a quote from the book. In a time when computers are replacing many basic human functions, will eventually come to be that audaciousness, vision, courage, creativity, a sense of justice, these will be the only tasks left to us. A computer can't practice secrecy or misdirection. A computer can't feel an urge to remake the world. Only humans can be that crazy. What you will do with this lesson, what ends you will put it to, are up to you. All I can say is that it is in these times of flux and upheaval that we may need that ambition most. Yeah, I, I guess I could just leave it hanging there because those are sort of the last lines in the book. But to me, that was the ultimate lesson of what happened here. It was not whether Teal should have shut down Gawker or not, but that he set out to do this crazy thing that everyone warned him against doing. And he did it, uh, to me, is, is in a weird, perverse way, very inspiring. And, and, and again, I think we, we are staring in the face of a lot of issues that we have become to, we have come to despair solutions to, whether it's the education thing we were talking about, or maybe it's the second amendment, or maybe it's our economy, whatever it is, um, we, we're sort of butting up against these walls. And I just, I don't want people to go, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. Let's do nothing. Uh, I, I'd like them to to think more creatively and more ambitiously about what they could do about it. And to me, that was the lesson that I tried to conclude the book with. My guest today has been Ryan Holiday. Ryan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.